Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, where we'll be this morning. Uh, we will have the verses on the screen, per usual. Um, today's message, you know, we've been going through this, this book. We're getting toward the end, a couple more weeks of uh, this, these, this, second, this book of 2 Corinthians. Today's message is going to cover the first half of uh, chapter 11. And this message is entitled, Father the Bride. It was making me think as I was, as I was studying this and thinking about a, a, a potential bride I had at one point and her father. Um, right after college, I became very serious with a girl from Pennsylvania and I moved to live near her. Um, she had told me some pretty crazy stories about her dad, pretty intimidating fella, a guy apparently you didn't want to cross, told me a lot of tales, I didn't believe most of them, I figured it would be no problem for me, I could charm him right away, he'd be on my side, he would just love me. So I opened the door, first time I'm going to meet him, I've got gifts in hand for he and his lovely wife, only to be met by her father in a pair of boxer shorts, a wife beater, and I'm not kidding, a shotgun pointed at me. Now in those moments right before you die, (laughs) things slow down and you start to think about life and what's important and and contemplating the reality. I say, you know, this guy claims to be a Christian. He's not going to actually shoot me, right? You know, can I hide behind my girlfriend? Is that a manly thing to do? You know, what, what do I do here? And it, and it turned out it was only a joke, okay? It was just to instill intimidation. Check. Um, and, I, and I did end up living in their basement for four months uh, after that. But if you think that I ever tried to sneak upstairs past his bedroom and gun case to his daughter's bedroom, you're insane, all right? I knew that this is what I would meet if I walked up there. I didn't want to be the next guy on the wall. But ultimately, what was her father communicating? Her father was communicating, I love my daughter. I am going to protect my daughter and her purity and and her happiness, her well-being, and if anybody tries to step in between my daughter and I, I'm going to kill him, right? It communicated a, an extreme love for his daughter, a lesson that I did not soon forget. And in this passage this morning, Paul uses this analogy that he is the father of the bride, and the bride is the Corinthian church. And he expresses his love and sincere desire to protect her. We look at, you jump in here, verse 2. Paul says, I'm jealous for you. He's talking to the church. He says, I'm jealous for you. And I say, wait a second. Time out, Paul. You're jealous for the church? I thought you just told us in the last letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, remember the love chapter? He said, love does not envy So if you say you love this church, but you're jealous for this church, I thought love wasn't jealous. I thought love didn't envy. How does that work? Can we be jealous of someone and it not be wrong? I want to submit to you that I believe that no emotion is inherently good or evil. In other words, all emotion, it can be good and it can be wrong. But that in and of itself, no, no emotion, you think about maybe emotions that we normally attribute as negative, fear, um, anger, jealousy, 
that none of those in and of themselves are wrong, and there is a time and a place for each of them. Take anger, for example. You think about in Ephesians chapter 4, what did Paul say? He said, in your anger, do not sin. So what does that imply? That it's possible to be angry and not sin. Being angry is not sinful, but he says, when you're angry, don't then sin. And you think about Jesus, a great example of anger. When we part the first one, you think about Jesus himself in the temple. When he comes in and he sees these people treating God's temple like a place to make a buck, he goes crazy. He starts flipping over tables. He's whipping. He's driving people out. Jesus is upset. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, he's talking to the Pharisees. And he says he looked around at them in anger. He was angry. They were abusing the concepts of the Sabbath, violating what his father, his heart for us was. And Jesus was angry. God the Father himself, Romans 1. The wrath of God, or it could be translated, the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and sinfulness. You go through the chapters of the Old Testament, God is angry all the time. So clearly, if that's that's something that God, that's an emotion God can experience, it's not inherently wrong. There's a couple questions we have to ask ourselves in regard to emotion and its relation to sin. Number one, what is the object of that emotion? In other words, what is the person emotional about or angry about? If you're throwing a tantrum, if you're upset because you're not getting your way, then that's a selfish thing to be, whoa, I'm still intact. That's a selfish thing to be angry about. Okay, But if you, like God, are angry that someone's sinning against God, that someone's harming another person, there are very just and reasonable reasons to be angry. The second question is, what is the outcome of that emotion? In other words, what does that emotion lead you to do? Does that emotion control you? We we see in Scripture, do not let the, the sun set on your anger. In other words, don't let that, that anger stay with you to where you harbor bitterness. Does that anger lead you to sin? Does it lead you to do something that you shouldn't be doing? What did God's anger against sin lead him to do? Well, he sent his son to die for us. So then we look at this, this, this idea of jealousy. Is jealousy wrong? Is it always wrong? The word jealousy comes from the Greek word zelo or zealous, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's the same word as zeal. The word zealous and jealous, to have jealousy, to, be, to be, have zeal for something, same exact root. And it simply means this. It simply means to want something earnestly and to pursue it. So to be jealous for something is to be zealous for it. It's to want it badly and to go after it. There are a lot of things in our lives that are worthy of being jealous for, of of, of passionately pursuing and going after it. So we ask ourselves, we apply this question to jealousy. What's the object of our jealousy? If it's, man, I want those shoes she has, right? Okay, that's selfish. That's materialistic. Or you say, I want to be as good looking as her. I want to be as rich as him. I want the attention. Then there's selfishness wrapped up in that jealousy. What I want is for me. And what's the outcome of that emotion? If I say, I'm going to knock her out and take her shoes, you know, probably shouldn't go down that path, right? 
If you let that desire for money and fame and attention to consume you, and, and, and you treat people wrong on the path to get that, that's not what God would have for us, I'd imagine. You think about in Acts 7, um, Stephen was giving his sermon, and he was talking about the jealousy of Joseph's brothers. So what happened? What was the object of their jealousy? They didn't like that Joseph, the youngest, he, he was getting all of this attention from dad. They wanted that same kind of attention for them. They didn't like that, so what was the object? What did that jealousy lead them to do? They wanted to kill him, but they compromised and decided to throw him in a pit and ship him off into slavery. That jealousy led them to the wrong treatment of their brother. But is it not appropriate for a husband to be jealous for his wife's faithfulness? To want her to want him only. For a father, a mother, to be jealous for their, their children's obedience, that they would not listen to another, that they would obey them. If we look at Paul's jealousy, we see a good kind of jealousy. In fact, he says in verse 2, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He says, this jealousy is, is good. In fact, it's, it's godly. It is, it is from God. And you look at Scripture, there's, there are many examples of good jealousy. We again go back to Jesus in the temple. When he's flipping over tables out of anger, he quotes this Old Testament passage. And what he says, he says, zeal for your house will consume me. What does he mean by He says, I am, in that same word, it's the same exact root as jealousy. Same, same, same word, same Greek word. He says, I am jealous for your house. What is it Jesus is passionately pursuing? That God, his name would be glorified, that would be held upright, that he would be worshipped as he's to be worshipped, that he would not be profaned. That's a, that's a noble thing. There's nothing pure in our lives to be passionate about than for God to be worshipped as he ought to be. There's a time, there's an appropriate place for jealousy. So what's Paul jealous for? What is he passionately pursuing with the Corinthians? Well, look at how he finishes verse 2. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. This is not Paul. Remember the, remember the, the, the context here is these false teachers came in. They're trying to convince the church that Paul is not for them. You should not follow Paul, you should follow us. You can't trust Paul, you should trust us. Paul here is not upset because he's losing the attention and adoration of the church here. He's not upset because he's losing a popularity contest. That all of a sudden in the church they're tearing down all their Paul posters and they're putting up all these false teacher posters and they're inviting these false teachers to speaking at Easter this year and not Paul. Paul, is, this is not a personal thing where he says, ah, you like them more than me. This is not a pity party. Paul's jealousy is not directed at himself. Paul says, I made a promise. I made a promise to present you to Christ and it's, it's a godly jealousy, literally a jealousy on behalf of God. He says, I promise to present you to him and him alone, that you would worship and love him alone, and you're turning from that. And my jealousy is not that you turn back toward me, but that you turn back toward him. The picture that Paul paints here is that of the father of the bride. Okay? Paul, in this case, is Steve Martin. He's the father. The church 
is, is the bride, the Corinthian church that he's talking to. So he's the father of the bride. He's the father of the Corinthian church spiritually. And then the bridegroom, the husband that the church is wedded to, is Christ. This is, these are the pieces of the analogy that he puts together. Paul wants to keep the church pure until the wedding day when they are presented to their bridegroom, Christ. Now, so that we can understand this better, to understand the Jewish background of, of what Paul's referring to, there, there's, some very, there's some very strong similarities between what the Jewish wedding system looked like as um, compared to ours today. For the Jews, there was this betrothal period. This would be like our engagement time. Okay, you get down on one knee, you pop the question, we're going to get married. That's their betrothal. And then there was the nuptial, which is we call the wedding. That's when you got married. Okay? So these two different events, and in between these two events, there was this year. About a year where the husband, he kind of get his marital ducks in a row, where he would maybe, he would maybe go get a couple extra dollars to give to the, uh, the father as a dowry, as a payment for the wife. Oftentimes, this is when he was building on to his home. He would make an addition. He would expand his house for his bride-to-be and, and all their potential children. Okay? And so what he would do is, is in this time, he'd be getting ready. Now, now here's the difference. Between the betrothal and the nuptial, there, there was this contract. There was this, there was this contract scene, the, the, the engagement, the betrothal, it, it indicated this legally, morally, spiritually binding contract. A contract, and that, that's where it gets different from us. Like we get engaged, you give them a ring, but if you decide, ah, it's not going to work out, even though there's some social implications, you can break off an engagement, right, without having to get lawyers involved. Well, here, this was a legally binding contract, but more importantly, it was a spiritually and morally binding contract that could only be undone by legal divorce or death. So, and, 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 and unfaithfulness, if you cheated on your spouse, that was seen as a breach of contract, and the one that was cheated on got to decide which option they wanted. So imagine that today. You know, your, your fiancé is unfaithful to you, and you say, off with her head, off with his head. That's pretty intense, right? And, that's, and that was the situation. They say, and, and so you think back to when Joseph decided, he said, he said I'm going to divorce Mary quietly. He really was choosing the better of the two options, right? He could have had her killed. When he found out she was pregnant, he knew it wasn't from him. And it wasn't until the angel came and sorted that out and said, this is from God. So, but during this time, during this year-long period when, when the husband's preparing this house for his wife, it was the responsibility of the father to keep the bride pure. The, the, the responsibility of the father to make sure that she was faithful to her, to her husband. And that he was, she was under his roof, under his protection, until that day where the nuptials occurred. And I don't know what he did. I don't know if he chained her up in the basement, you know, surrounded her by a bunch of nerdy cousins so there'd be no temptation. I, I don't know what the, what the process was of ensuring that. But, but that was his job. And today we still have, some of that tradition still lingers today in our culture. I was thinking about um, my sister's wedding. Was it four years ago now? Almost four? Four years ago with Janelle, and this is my dad, walking her down the aisle, getting ready to hand her off. And what is the symbolism there? 
as it was actually right here. And she's walking down this aisle with dad. And then he's going to pass her off to Ryan, symbolizing I am moving her from my protection and care and love to your protection and care and love. Before that, if anybody would have tried to get to Janelle, they had Theo to answer to, okay? He had gone kung fu on them. Why do you think she's wearing white? Yes, sir. He, take, he took care of business. Kept her pure. <laughs> and so Paul says, when I brought you the gospel, you were engaged to Christ. This, this betrothal, it, the spiritual parallel there is our salvation. The moment we placed our faith in Christ, Scripture says that we were, we were united with him. The, the marriage is a picture of, of what is even truer and, and longer lasting is our, our forever union with Christ. And at that moment of salvation, we were engaged to him, but not just, oh, I might be with him someday. That's a done deal. But then there's this period in between that and when he comes back, this year-long period, which, which for us, you know, in time is longer. And this is, what did, John, what did Jesus say to his disciples in John 14? He said, there's many mansions in my father's house. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't say that. I am going to prepare a place for you. And Jesus is right now, this is that year-long period, we're waiting for him to come back. And in that time, he's up there building us a house. Building a mansion for us to come and to dwell with him forever. And then one day, he's going to come back. Scripture says we're going to see him as he is. And and the wedding, the nuptial is going to take place. Revelation 19 paints it as this beautiful marriage supper of the Lamb where he's coming back for his bride. We're going to have this great feast and then we're going to go live with him forever. But in the meantime, the Apostle Paul says, I, I'm the one that brought you the gospel and therefore I see myself as your spiritual father. And he's saying to the Corinthian church, my job is to make sure that you stay pure, that you stay faithful until he comes back for that wedding. Because I want him to find you wearing white. But Paul has a fear. He has a fear about this time period until Jesus comes back. And he says in verse 3, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, what I'm afraid about is your sincere and pure devotion, which could be translated singleness of devotion. He says, I'm afraid that being singly devoted, to be only faithful to him, that you're in danger of breaching that contract of stepping out of that monogamous relationship with him, of cheating on Christ. He's talking about spiritual adultery here. And, and, and this would be an analogy that the Corinthians would have really understood. Remember, their culture is baked in immorality and fornication and a lot of these sexual sins. So they would understand this very clearly. And you look back at the Old Testament, and it's littered with pictures of God as a jealous father, or a jealous husband, sorry. And Israel is the wayward spouse. And how many times when, when, when Israel disobeys his commandments, when Israel turns their back on God and worships false idols or the gods of other nations, he says that as though they, they, have, they have prostituted themselves out on, on God. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, when he says, you shall not bow down to an other, another God, the language he uses, why? He says, for I am a jealous God. 
I am a jealous God, a God that passionately pursues the single, singularity of devotion among my people, that you would worship and love and serve me alone. And that's a godly jealousy because God is right in being zealous for our devotion unto him and to him alone. He's worthy of that. So he has a right to be jealous. And just as tragic as it is when a, a girl gets engaged to a guy, and while he is faithfully waiting for her, she's seduced away by somebody on a one-night stand, which is never worth it. Paul says the stakes are even higher when our soul is on the line. And it's far more tragic when we're seduced away from our first love. So how is it that the Corinthian church, how is it that we cheat on Christ? The, the, the picture that Paul uses here, he says, he talks about the serpent's cunning. That Satan is the seducer. And, and what is being seduced? He says, your minds. The gateway to that unfaithfulness is our minds. Pastor Larry talked about this several weeks ago. It comes down to this spiritual battle that we're engaged with is, comes down to the lies versus the truth. And Satan, as we know, he's called the father of lies. And so Satan, the way he gets to us, the primary way he gets to us is through these lies. Three things. Number one, he wants us to listen to the lies. He wants us to hear them out. Hear the lies. Number two, consider the lies. Contemplate them. Okay? Weigh them out in our minds. Mull them around. And then number three, believe the lies. Hear them, think about them, and then buy into them. That's, that's his method. And, and so the, Paul goes back here to the garden, so it warrants us to go back there for a moment. You think about Eve and, and, and Satan, this, this showdown, this first showdown between Satan and man. And, and three things that Satan does here. The first thing he does is he gets Eve to question God's word. He gets her to question the truth. What does he say? He says, did God really say that? Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? See, he gets Eve to start questioning God, to start questioning truth, and, and on a deeper level, the question, can I believe him? Can, can I trust God? Like, is God for me? Like, is his word to me? Is it something I can bank on? He starts by questioning the truth. And number two, he denies God's word. He denies the truth. He says, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. God is lying to you. And he gets Eve to start questioning, to mull around in her mind, well, maybe, maybe I can't trust God. Maybe I can't just depend on him. And then number three, he goes for the jugular here. He substitutes the truth with his own lie. And he tells Eve, you're going to be like God. He says, here's the deal. If you eat this fruit, you're going to have the knowledge to know the difference between good and evil, just like God. You're going to have the wisdom that God has, no longer relying on him to know what's right and wrong. You're going to get to know it. And God doesn't want you to know what he knows. God's holding back from you. And he gets her to, to, to believe this lie that God, that she can't just simply trust God. And isn't that the fall of, of Lucifer in the first place? He said, I, it's not enough for me to serve and worship this God as his right-hand man. I'm going to bump him off the throne and I'm going to be like God. John MacArthur said something that I thought was interesting in regard to this. He said, I do not believe for a moment that Eve believed she was sinning. Now, this could potentially open up a can of worms, but the point here is, is this. The passage that we're looking at says Eve was deceived. 
Genesis 3 says she was convinced that the fruit was good, that it was good for her to eat, that that what was going to come of it was a good thing. And I don't believe, I I don't know that she was purposely rebelling against God as much as it was that she genuinely thought she was getting good information. She was deceived. And that's how lies and deception work. It's only in the aftermath that you realize you've been duped. And that's why the closer to the truth the lie is, the better the lie. The best lie is taking the truth and just twisting it just a little bit. Just a little bit. And that's why it's so easy for us to many times think that we're doing the right thing Maybe the, the, the churchy thing, the thing that God would want us to do, but Satan's taken what's good and he just twists it just a little bit. And so Satan makes us question God's word. Did God say, did he really say that he's going to love you no matter what? Did he really say that he's going to love you and that all you have to do is, is trust Jesus? Is that really? And he starts to get us to question God. Then he gets us to, to, to doubt God. He says, to, he denies the word. He says, no, I, I, think, I, I don't think that's enough. I think you need to do more. Satan whispers into our ear. Then he substitutes the truth of the lie. He says, I think you need to earn his love. I think you need to earn his love by going to church more often. I think you need to earn his love by being better than your neighbor. I think you need to earn his love by, by reading your, your, your Bible. Now, All of those things are good things, right? It's good to go to church. It's good to read your Bible. It's good to be a good person. But if we're doing it under the auspice that that me doing those things is going to earn God's favor, that we're going to become right in his sight because of those things, Satan's taken things that are good and he's perverted them and our motives toward them. Things that seem like they're so right, but they're lies. These are the kind of lies the Corinthians were buying into, adding works to the gospel. It wasn't something obvious, but it was so close to the truth. That's why in verse 13 he says, For such men, these false apostles, he says they're, they're deceitful workmen, masquerading, wearing a mask, pretending to be apostles of Christ. He says they come saying that they're sent by Jesus. And he says, no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then that his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. He says, these guys came to your door saying they were, they were of Jesus, saying that they're telling you about Jesus. You see, Satan doesn't come with the, the, the red Halloween costume, right? With the horns and the pitchfork. Satan comes with a three-piece suit and a smile. Most of us in this room, I would venture to say, are probably not going to fall into like blatant Satan worship. Where we're on the floor saying, all hail, you know, Satan, you are worthy of all. Like it, it will not be blatant like that. And Satan's fine with that. He, he doesn't need us to worship him by name. In fact, it's been said, Charles Baudelaire said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. In other words, you're not doing anything wrong. He doesn't need the attention on his name. He just needs it off of Jesus. You don't have to be worshiping Satan. As long as, as, long as we're not worshiping the true Lord, Satan's good. Because by default, if we're, if we're not worshiping him, 
Okay? And we're worshiping self, that, that's where Satan, Satan's being worshipped, and, and, and the, the eyes are off of God, which is all Satan's about. So he uses very subtle, very deceptive means to make you think that you're following Jesus. He makes you think you're being faithful to your husband while he's convincing you to cheat on him. And so what he often does is he simply adds a little bit to Jesus. He says, yeah, yeah, you can serve Jesus, but you just got to add in a little bit of your own good works. You can serve Jesus, you just, but you also need these special gifts. And you can serve Jesus, you just need a little bit of extra knowledge. Just twisting the truth just a little bit. And that's what Paul says in verse 4. He says, for someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He says, you guys, just, these people came in and you just said, yeah, come on in. We'll listen to you. He says, you just easily accepted this. He says, what you accepted was a twisted Jesus, and then it's not Jesus at all. It's a different spirit. It's a different gospel. It's a different Jesus. You think about the Mormon church, which claims to serve the same Jesus that we serve. When you dig down deeper and you, you see beyond the mask, they believe that, that, Jesus, that Jesus was a created being. That he's not God. Well, if Jesus isn't God, then he couldn't have died for our sins because he needed to be a perfect sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice, and only God can do that. So what we see is that, in fact, we're serving a completely different Jesus than they are. See, Satan tries to make it Jesus plus something. He's okay with you using the name Jesus as long as it's not just Jesus. But we believe, the Bible's very clear, that it's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. That's why we sing the song, In Christ Alone. That's why we sing the song, Jesus paid it all. That's why we sing the song, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's Jesus and nothing else. I'm putting all my chips in on Jesus and I'm not going to add anything to it. So what do I take home from this? What do we, what do, we do with this this week? Paul proved his love to the Corinthian church by protecting it from these false teachers. By, like a father, protecting his daughter's purity until her wedding day. So a few questions I want us to ask ourselves as we leave. Number one, are we jealous for people to love us or to love their bridegroom? In other words, when you think about your relationship with the people in your life, your family, your friends, your coworkers. Do you spend your time and your energy trying to get them to buy into how awesome you are? To, to, to validate you, to get attention from you? Do you? Are you jealous for them and you want the attention that they're getting from other people? Are you ultimately inward focused? Or like Paul, when you look around the people of your life, do you have one passion that you're pursuing? And that's that the people in your life would know Jesus. That they would be singularly devoted to Jesus. And all of your time and energy is, is spent in loving them well and speaking truth when the Spirit says to speak truth. And number two, are we setting ourselves apart for Him as a pure and spotless bride? Or the flip side of that, are we being seduced by other lovers? Ask yourself this question this week. Am, am I adding something to Jesus? And what you love and what you worship, is it him alone or are you putting something else in there? Or is there something else you believe that you need to do or have or know in order for God to love you? In order for God to accept you? In order for God to see you as right in his sight? 
It's a battle we as believers, I'll tell you, we all fight that. So if you're experiencing that, you're not alone. You're, it's a normal Christian thing to experience. It's the battle that we're, that we're seeing happen in our lives. This is going to happen both individually, personally, with each of us in this room, and corporately. Something that we strive to work through together. May our passion, may our zeal, just like Jesus said, may your zeal for, my zeal for your house consumes me. May zeal for God's house, for his name, for reverence unto him alone consume us. And the battle is truth versus lies. So how do we best detect the lies? How do we know when this is happening? How do we know when we or someone we love is adding something to Jesus, serving another Jesus? We've talked about before, how do those who are in the counterfeit business, how do they know when a counterfeit dollar bill comes across their plate? It's not by studying all the different counterfeit money out there. i got to know all the different wrong stuff. They simply study the true dollar bill. The real thing. So that when they know it so well, they know that real thing inside and out. So that when something false comes across their plate, they can immediately identify it. Say, that's not the real thing, because I know the real thing intimately. It's the same thing for us. That's That's why we're doing what we're doing right now. That's why we do Sunday morning. That's why we have small groups together. That's why we encourage each other to be in the Word day in and day out. And we point each other to Jesus so that we would know Him so well, so intimately. We are so familiar with the truth that the second a lie comes across, we call it out for what it is. And we see that's Jesus plus something. That's a different Jesus because I know my Jesus so well. And that's not Him. When we do this, when we know Him, we know the truth. John says the truth will set you free. We're free from the lies. We're free from the unfaithfulness. And we push each other. We call each other to faithfulness unto him. So when he comes back, he's building a house for us right now. When he comes back, and it could be any moment now, are we going to be able to stand before him dressed in white and embrace him as our savior, as the lover of our souls? Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for for saving us. You saw your anger burned against us, against that sinfulness in our hearts, in our minds. But you led that anger, that that jealousy for, for your glory, for all worship to be to you, led you to send your Son to come in our place, to be our righteousness to forgive us, not based on anything we've done, but in him alone. Father, the only grounds you accept us on, the only hope that we have is Jesus. But Father, it's so easy to get led away from that. It's so easy to buy into the lie that we need other things, that he's not sufficient, that we can't trust him. And Father, as the the devil whispers lies into our ears, we get seduced, we we get pulled away. And Father, I pray that you would give us the boldness to speak truth to each other. And if someone in this room today knows someone in their life and, man, they're following a different Jesus or they're going down a path they ought not go down, that we'd have the courage to speak truth to them, that we'd look for those opportunities that you give us to to love them and to to point them back, to be that protective father that says, I want to see you. I want to see you singularly devoted to Jesus. And maybe that's going on in our own hearts. We be honest with ourselves that we confess that, call it out for what it is. And we come back to you, not on the grounds of, God, I'm going to get it right this time. 
on the grounds of thank you for saving me. And this is just another evidence of how much I need your son. May we fall at the feet of the cross where the only hope is found, where the only righteousness is found. Maybe we lie detectors by knowing the truth so well. Father, give us a, a hunger for your truth that we'd be in the word, that we'd be talking to one another. We need each other, God. That's why you gave us the body. That we would sharpen iron. This church would be a church that was zealous for your truth. That we'd know the truth. And the truth would set us free from the bondage, free from the lies, to be your pure and spotless bride, washed and presented pure in the, in the linens of Jesus' righteousness. We love you. We thank you for that Jesus. We look forward to the day when we sit down at that supper table with our groom. It's in that groom's name that we pray. Amen.